Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 4, verse 36 through chapter 5, uh, verse 11. You may follow along on your Bibles or on the big screen. Hear now the word of God. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you have received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you, do, uh, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who, who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Amen. Thank you, David. Good morning, New Mercy. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be delivering today's message. Okay, for those of us who grew up in the church, uh, you may, we probably know a famous uh, story in the Old Testament. Uh, that would be Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Uh, there's an old uh, African-American spiritual that became a popular children's song. Uh, that would be Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. I will spare all of you by not singing it. Uh, but the story goes that uh, God tells Joshua to go take Jericho. Uh, so they walk around the city of Jericho six days in a row in complete silence. Then on the seventh day, they blow their trumpets and shout. And as we know from the song, the walls come tumbling down. It's a song and story about trusting God, uh, waiting on God, how God will give us the victory when we follow his instructions. So many of us know that story. It's a famous story. It's a victorious story. Uh, but many people are not aware of the coda, uh, what takes place virtually right after the Israelites take Jericho. So shortly after they're in Jericho and they take it over, uh, there's another opportunity to take a city called Ai, or I. So the men get ready, and they're pumped to, you know, win another battle. And they decide to take only 3,000 men, which is about one-tenth of how, how much they would usually take. They would usually take 30,000. Uh, they figure this is going to be easy-peasy, and other victories about to happen. Uh, but instead, they go up, and they get routed. They lose. The Bible says that they lost 36 men. So Joshua is devastated. He, he tears his clothes as a sign of anguish. And he asked God, like, what happened? Why did you let us lose? 
Uh, Joshua is like, God, why are you making us look so bad? You know, other people will hear and, and take advantage of us now. And God reveals the reason. He tells Joshua that there is sin in the camp. There is disobedience taking place. God had told the Israelites when they took Jericho not to keep any of the devoted things, not to keep any articles made of gold and silver. That they would, if they find those things, they should put them into the treasury of the temple, which would rightfully belong to God. Uh, but there was a man named Achan. He saw this beautiful uh, Babylonian robe. He saw some silver and a bar of gold. So he disobeys, and he decides to keep those things for himself. He hides them away. So Joshua and the leaders confront Achan. Achan confesses, and he is condemned to death. And it's a sad story. It's a, it's a sobering story. Uh, remember, it's in the context of victory. So everyone was in good spirits. Everyone was striving. But because one man disobeyed, there's now heartache and defeat in the community. And this reminds us of what I talked about last week, that community is highly personal. It's highly individual. We all know that one bad apple can, can ruin it for everyone else. In this story, everyone is flying high, uh, but it just takes one person's uh, selfishness, one person's sinful act to knock everyone down. And that story in the Old Testament has a lot of parallels to our main passage today. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts. Uh, looking at the early church, we call this series Empowering Encounters. And so far, we've looked at two pretty awesome encounters. Two weeks ago, Pastor Key looked at when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, which gave power to the early church so that people could uh, spread the gospel, let people know who Jesus is. Uh, last week, we looked at the early church and how they displayed the greatness of God with their unity, with their togetherness. So today's passage is also an empowering encounter, uh, just not in the way we might expect. Uh, just as there was great victory over Jericho, there was great victory taking place in the early church. And as we've seen in the last two weeks in this series, uh, many people were getting saved. Many people were coming into relationship with Jesus virtually every day. But just like with Achan in the Old Testament, there was sin in this camp. Just like God dealt harshly with Achan, we see that God deals harshly with this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, in our passage today. So we saw last week how the early church was thriving. The Bible says that they had everything in common. They were, they were like-hearted. They were unified. They constantly met together, spending time in fellowship and prayer. In addition to that, they were very sacrificial toward one another. I skipped over a verse from last week because I wanted to focus on it this week. Uh, it's this verse that we see, the first slide, Acts chapter 2, verse 45. It tells us that the early church, the disciples, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This was a common practice back then. People who owned land, they would actually sell their land. And the money that they would receive from selling it, they would give all of that money to the apostles. And the apostles would then distribute it to people in need. There was this radical generosity that took place. And scripture tells us in Acts 2 and also in Acts 4 before our main passage that because of such a practice, there was nobody in need. Not even one. 
So we see again just how united this church was. Everybody was paying attention to everybody. If one person was in need, just one, everybody felt that need and addressed it in a tangible way. And that's a great blueprint for our church. Thanks, Abby. That's a great blueprint for our church. When someone is in need, right, we, we hear about it and we go and we care for that person, right? That was, that was perfect. <laughs> All right, in, our, right, in, in the church, when there's a person in need, we, you know, we ought to uh, get together, right, care and pray for that person. And, and if it's a need that we can practically meet, right, whether with money or connections or special knowledge, we do that so that we can, uh, we do whatever we can to meet each other's needs. We see one shining example in the beginning of our passage today. Uh, next slide, Acts chapter 4, verses 36 to 37. This is the first time we're introduced to Barnabas. Many of us know Barnabas. He was the Apostle Paul's buddy. He was known for being an encourager. His name is the son of encouragement. And we see in this passage that he followed this practice. He sells a field. He gets all the money, and then he brings it to the apostles. That is a, a good example, right? the right example in our passage. But then in chapter 5, verse 1, it starts with, now a man. This is a phrase of contrast. It's a way of saying, however, or on the other hand. So there was Barnabas, this man of God, who sold the land and, and gave all the money to the apostles, did it the right way, this man of integrity. Now a man, on the other hand, there was Ananias together with his wife, Sapphira. And in verse 2, we learn of what they did. They, they sold their land, just like Barnabas, but instead of giving all they received to the apostles, they keep some back for themselves. This word in verse 2, kept back, uh, it means uh, to pilfer, to embezzle, to steal. It's actually the same word from that first story of Achan. This word that implies taking or keeping what does not belong to us. And this is an intentional word choice by Luke, the author of Acts. He's making this parallel. In both stories, God's people are victorious. They're growing. Life is good. Everyone's thriving. But then there's this act of deceit and disobedience that causes great pain for the community. On one hand, this may actually encourage us. Maybe last week you were a little discouraged because you saw how amazing the early church was. They seemed perfect. They seemed like they had zero problems. Uh, sometimes we see other couples or families or churches, and we're like, oh, man, they're perfect. They've, they've got it all together. They post beautiful pictures on Instagram. They, they always look so happy in perfect harmony. Uh, but we know that's not true, right? There's always sin. There's always problems. So in our passage today, we see the early church. They were great. They were always together. They were unified. But there were selfish people too. There were issues uh, just like we have in our church or in any other church. So this story can give us a much-needed perspective. Even in the good old days, there was the problem of sin. On the other hand, this story is a much-needed cautionary tale. It's full of warnings that we ought to pay attention to. Uh, one reason that God strikes down Ananias and Sapphira in this passage is so that the early church will pay attention, listen immediately 
to this cautionary tale. Even today, we hear heartbreaking stories of people uh, dying, uh, especially athletes. Uh, when I think of like the, suppl the supplements, right, all the industry out there, there's all these supplements, right, that have warning labels. And a lot of them basically say they're dangerous. A lot of them say like they're not approved by the FDA. Uh, but we know that these warnings get ignored and tragedy occurs as a result. Uh, the same goes for us, right? We are always in danger of falling into sin, which can lead to spiritual death. So in our passage today, we see four warnings that we should take seriously as we look at our hearts in light of this story. Number one, the first warning has to do with our money. And what most likely happened was Ananias and Sapphira, they, they originally agreed to sell the land. They, they took, you know, take all the money and give it to the apostles, right? just like Barnabas did for distribution to those in need. It was a noble gesture, a noble commitment. Perhaps they saw others doing it, and they were rightfully inspired. Oh, yeah, let's do this too, right? Let's do what other people are doing. Let's sacrifice and help those around us. But somewhere along the line, they get greedy. Now, we don't know what happened. Maybe there were pressing needs that came about. Uh, maybe they wanted more financial security. Uh, perhaps they sold the land. And they got more money than they expected. So they were like, oh, we could still be generous, uh, but keep a cup for ourselves. And we've all experienced the siren song of money, this seductive power of money. There's always a temptation to keep more for ourselves. Now, I want to be clear here because there's this misconception. Uh, people think that the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. And that sounds really unfair. Okay, that's not what the Bible says, right? Here's what the Bible says. Next slide. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10a. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. What that means is money by itself is neutral. It's not intrinsically evil. It can be used for good and bad. And for us as believers, it comes down to what we call stewardship, meaning how do you and I view the money that we have, the money that we make? Uh, after all, you know, we've earned that money with our paycheck, right, with our hard work. Many of us, we invested a lot of time and money, not just at our jobs themselves, but training, college and grad school and so forth. So we, we have a right, right? We've earned that paycheck. We've earned that money. But the question remains, how do we see that money? Do we see that money as belonging to God or to ourselves? If we see our money as God's, meaning that we are just stewards of that money, we're like a fund manager for God, uh, then we will have more of an open hand. We will ask God, how should I spend this money? Are there ways that I can bless people, uh, help those in need? But if we see this money as solely ours because we earned it, we will be more close-handed. We, we will seek to use only for our means our own gain, our own security. Obviously, we see that someone like Barnabas, he used it for good. And that's, you know, that's a great thing about the church. Uh, the church, you know, throughout history has been very generous, right? We use money for good purposes. Uh, David O'Reilly, a professor at UPenn, he did this study. He selected 11 churches and one synagogue and found that the average economic worth of each in terms of benefiting the Philadelphia neighborhood Right? So each church, each synagogue, their contribution was over $4 million 
a year. Okay, and that's our goal too, maybe not $4 million, all right, but to be a church that blesses our local community. Of course, that's not just money, that's volunteer hours and uh, nonprofit service, but it's also a lot of charitable giving. And that's what the church should be known for, being exceedingly generous. Uh, but to make this more applicable for us, a good rule of thumb is for us to evaluate our budgeting, our spending, when we start making more money. So when we get a raise, when we get a better paying job, anytime that we receive new income, those are truly times for us to come before God and say, God, what should I do? Right, what should I do with this new windfall? I read the story in uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. A group of pastors started preaching about discipleship. And many members were convicted. And they became like the early church. They actually all brought the titles for their homes and apartments and gave them to the church. And the church leaders were surprised. And they didn't know what to do. They had all this you know, money, all these assets. So they, stayed, they prayed for about six months. And they actually felt led to return it all, right? And they said to the members, the Lord showed us that he doesn't want your empty houses. He wants a house with you inside taking care of it. Uh, just remember, though, that it all still belongs to God. So, so that kind of open-handedness, that kind of generosity, that should be our impulse when God blesses us materially. We should give thanks, uh, praise God for his goodness to us, and naturally, as a result, ask God, God, how can I give it back to you? How can I build your kingdom with it? I like how Randy Alcorn puts it. Next slide. He says that God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. And if we adopt that mentality that our money is God's, we become much less susceptible to falling in love with money. So just as money is neutral, so is recognition. Did you notice in our passage today that Barnabas is recognized for his actions? Some of us might be surprised by that because we like to think such things should be completely anonymous. But recognition by itself is not bad. Barnabas is setting a very public and very positive example. And this recognition is inspiring, it's encouraging. That's why he's called the son of encouragement. Right? His story of generosity encourages the early church, uh, encourages us today. But it all comes down to our motives. When we share good news, when we share things that we do for God, we can do it in a way that brings glory to God, that encourages those around us. Sometimes we make the excuse, you know, I'm not gonna do this because recognition is bad, because I need to stay humble, but that can actually be false humility. You could actually encourage people with your story, with your testimony. Again, it's just like with money, right? This all requires discernment, an active relationship with the living God. That's the beauty of the Christian life. It's, it's black and white with our hearts and our motives, but that also means on the outside, it can look different uh, for each of us. Some of us, we may need to be more humble and more quiet because we're more susceptible to pride and trying to look good. But for others, you may need to be more public and so you can give more glory to God with your testimonies, with how you seek to obey God with your actions. So in our story, Barnabas here has the right heart and he is rightfully recognized. 
And Ananias does the same thing on the outside, the same exact act. But by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, Peter perceives the heart of Ananias, and he sees the hypocrisy. We see this in verse 4. Peter says to Ananias, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have, lied not, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Ananias wants people to think he's just like Barnabas, that he's just as spiritually impressive. And this hypocrisy, this is dishonesty, is what leads to his death. Another reason that God kills Ananias and Sapphira is because this lack of integrity is poison to a growing community. In this mission organization, Youth for Christ, uh, they work with many young volunteers. They, they come from other faiths. Uh, and a lot of these young volunteers, they're, they're not up to speed with all the Christian etiquette. Uh, they have lots of zeal and passion, but kind of lacking in wisdom. And one leader, Ajit Fernando, he, he says that when he visits these uh, different centers for Youth for Christ, he always tells them this. Right? He tells them, we know you'll make mistakes, and it may make us look bad, but that's okay. Uh, those are mistakes made out of passion. We can handle those. But there is one thing we regard as deadly serious, lying. Right? That is the one sin that is extremely dangerous. Uh, lying destroys lives, it destroys communities, it destroys trust. And we all know this. When you and I find out that somebody has lied to us, what do we start thinking right away? What else has that person lied about? Right? We know that liars tend to be habitual liars. Even this act by Ananias and Sapphira, this is not a first-time offense. Perhaps it's the first time they embezzled and they stole money, but it can't be their first time lying. And in our passage, uh, our main passage is actually bracketed by uh, references to the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, like we know, is, is deeply at work in this community, this unity that's being forged. But because Ananias and Sapphira threatened that unity, that same power, the Holy Spirit, who brought joy and togetherness, is the same power that brings judgment to this couple. Because they were a real threat to this beautiful fellowship that was taking place in the early church. There was this precious unity, but as we know, unity can be fragile. So God deals harshly with this breach of trust. And as I mentioned before, uh, Satan can work with the love of money, which leads to all kinds of evil. And likewise, Satan can work with our lying. Okay, after all, what is, what is the true motive when we lie? Uh, I just finished teaching SATs for eight weeks. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but I'm glad it's over. And uh, there was this student of mine. This happened like the second or third week. And he was new, it was his first day. It was on 7-11, July 11th, uh, free slippery free day, right, at 7-11. So uh, the story, you know, we're just talking, we're just, you know, telling stories, and the student begins telling a story about how he and his friends, they went to free slurpy day, and they would, like, get these buckets, right, and fill these buckets with as much slurpy as possible. And then they would go and, and sell it for money. Right? They would profit, right? They would sell money. They would sell Slurpees uh, to their friends for profit. And I guess during the class, like, I shared that I'm a pastor, right? I do that once in a while. 
And what happened was after the class, right, the class is over, um, it's 5 p.m., everyone's like leaving, he stays behind and he comes up to me. He's like, oh, Bob, like, um, I actually lied about that selling part. Right? I didn't sell them for money. Yeah, we just gave them away. So he like embellished the story with that extra detail. But why did he do that? It's to look, to look better in front of his peers. I love that he confessed to me. I was like blown away. I was like, what's going on here? Right? Uh, like maybe, I guess the fear of the Lord struck him. Right? Um, and there's a great lesson there. Right? But you know, why do we do those kinds of things? I sympathize right away when he told me that story. Because I used to do that all the time. Right? Not just me, right? A lot of you did it as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> I did that all the time like, you know, when I was growing up in church, high school, college. Right? We do that kind of thing to look good. It's to impress people. It's the opposite of love. It's, it's self-love. And when we do such a thing, we become more vulnerable to the work of the devil. Because the devil can then work with that desire to impress that self-love. And what's said about the story is that Ananias and Sapphira did not have to lie. It was, it was a free and voluntary lie. They could have just told Peter and the apostles, hey, uh, you know what, we, we sold the land, we got more money than we thought, uh, you know, we're going to keep some of the money for ourselves, um, you know, we'll give just some of it, you know, we want to modify what we said before. Uh, and that's why Peter says in this verse, it's your money, it's at your disposal. You could have kept it. But what drives them here is that desire for recognition. For people on hand to see and believe that there were these impressively generous people. And that goes back to what I shared last week. Again, that the less we need people, the more we can love them. Uh, because if we find our identity secure as a child of God, well, we don't need to impress people. We can be truthful. We don't have to embellish any stories. We can be truthful about our brokenness, about our weaknesses. We don't need to cover any of them up. We can be genuine and honest at all times because we are deeply loved by our Creator. And that openness, that brokenness, is what promotes and builds community. However, if we, if we fall back into that self-love, which ultimately leads to dishonesty, true community dies. So church, let's heed this warning. Let's ask God to root out any threads of lying, hypocrisy, so that we can be true promoters of unity in our community. Let's talk about the third warning. The third warning is actually marriage. There's a warning about marriage in our passage. We can see that Ananias and Sapphira were clearly in cahoots together. Right, look at verse one and two again. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. And then in verse two, it says, with his wife's full knowledge, right? That's kind of like unnecessary because the wife like always knows everything, right? But it says, with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back some of the money for himself. So this was an agreement that they made together. They talked it out, they planned it. They made a joint decision to lie. And going a little bit forward in verse seven, after Ananias dies, it says about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? So Peter gives Sephira a chance to come clean. 
This is her chance to tell the truth. But she lies because she and Ananias had already made a pact that they were going to embezzle, they were going to steal. So we see in verse 9, right? Peter says, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. So Ananias and Sapphira, they live together, they lie together, they die together. And just think that if one person in that marriage was like, honey, I don't think this is a good idea. Right? Let's, let's not test God. Let's not lie to our community. If one person feared God and refused to go along with this idea, then this idea is dead in the water. Right? But now they're just both dead. And we've talked about money. Right? Money can be good or bad for the kingdom of God or not. We've talked about recognition, same thing. It can be good or bad. And the same thing is with marriage. Marriage can be this force. Right? We got to bless uh, DK and Tina, right? We are the husband and wife both love God right? and, and fear God together. They were really, you know, DK and Tina are really example of that. Right? But marriage can also be a big detriment when one or both do not fear God. I implore those of you who are single, uh, make this quality right? someone who fears the Lord a high priority in what you're looking for. This, by the way, is very practical. You know, if you have a spouse who fears the Lord, who seeks to live humbly and obediently to God, that person will make a great spouse. You know, that person will repent regularly, confess his or her sin, uh, focus on what they're doing wrong, instead of just blaming you for what you're doing wrong. Right? So there will be more peace and forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is really the number one key to a good marriage. I haven't been married very long. Uh, but I see it already, right? There's this potential to um, always hold grudges, right? It's a very scary thing. And if just one spouse fears the Lord, you've got a much better chance of pleasing the Lord in you know, both of your lives. You know, imagine if Sophia had been like, honey, let's rethink this, right? I know we have financial needs. I know it's tempting to lie and to look good, but let's, you know, let's reconsider. Let's not do this. If one spouse was sharply against this, uh, this story does not take place. And sadly, you know, we've seen this happen, I've seen this happen, uh, two Christians get married, but a lot of times we choose the path of least resistance. So one or both of them doesn't fear God, not really interested in committing to a church community, and what happens? That couple stops coming to church. When one, when one of them was single, uh, he or she loved Jesus, loved the church. Right? But then that person got married, right? and their spouse, not, not purposely, not maliciously, uh, but the spouse had influence, and now they're you know, both stagnant spiritually. And this, this kind of stuff happens all the time, unless there is fear of the Lord in the marriage. Because fearing the Lord, what I mean by fearing the Lord is, again, just this desire to please God, this desire to honor God with our words and our thoughts and our actions. That is what leads to commitment. Right? It can be a great force for good. I know couples right, that have small children, uh, but they committed. Right? They said, we're not going to be one of those families you know, with small children that just disappear from church. You know, obviously, taking care of small children is very difficult, uh, very time-consuming. Uh, but that's more reason to draw that line in the sand. 
to make that commitment. You know, even during this season, we're going to keep seeking God. We're going to continue to grow in community. So let's heed that warning if you're single to, to seek a partner that fears the Lord. Right? Place a high priority on that. If you're dating, planning on getting married, if you're married, um, you and your significant other right, can commit, uh, even recommit. Right? This, this will be a value in your relationship. The final warning. In our passage today, it's, it's really emphasized, it's really stressed that Ananias and Sapphira die. Uh, look at verse 10 for Sephira. Right? At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Uh, both times, uh, when they talk about Ananias and Sephira, um, it says that they fell and they died. And then young men came forward and carried and buried their dead bodies. So did they really die on the spot? Yes. And they were also immediately buried. They're like as dead as can be. And it happened instantly. And I'm sure some of you have wondered, were they believers? Were Ananias and Sapphira Christians? What do you guys think? I believe yes. Right? They were indeed genuine Christians. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur, he gives us a few reasons why. Uh, first, in our passage, right before it, it talks about the community. Right? This is a thriving church community, and they were part of it. Uh, second, Peter says to Ananias, how can you lie to the Holy Spirit? Right? Which implies that Ananias had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. But most of all, we know that this passage, this story, is a lesson for the church. It's not a lesson for the unchurched. It's not a, le it's not a lesson for you know, non-Christians. We read this passage and we realize that this is for us. This is for you and me. This is a cautionary tale for those of us who believe in Jesus. And our reaction should echo the early church's reaction. Our final verse, verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Great fear. And this is actually very healthy. This is a good fear. When, the, when the, wrong, you know, the wrong kind of fear can lead us astray, but the right kind of fear can be a great motivator. When we think of the warnings that we've covered today, they all have to do with fear. Number one, we fear not having enough money, so then we're close-handed, we're not generous with it. Uh, number two, we fear not looking good in front of others, so we compromise our integrity, we tell lies. Even number three, we could fear upsetting our spouse. Right? So we end up living for our spouse more than we live for God. Uh, this story is actually a story of God's grace toward the early church. It's, it's full of warnings for God's people to heed so that they will continue to grow in faith and in community. Do you think that other people who were thinking about doing the same thing that Ananias and Sapphira do, do you think they now go through with it? Right? Only if you're crazy, right? Only, only if, you're, you know, if you really want to test God. And, and actually going back to our first story in the Old Testament, uh, when I told you about Achan, if you remember, I told you that 36 men died out of 3,000. That's actually not a lot. You know, God could have struck down many more to make his point, but he actually showed mercy by not allowing more men to die. 
It's the same in this story. Two people die, but more people could have died if this couple hadn't died. Fear sees the church, and that is a blessing. That is actually the grace of God. When you and I are gripped by the healthy fear of God, when you and I are convicted of our sin and our wrongdoing, that's a wonderful place to be. For me, when I hear stories today of uh, churches, pastors, uh, we, unfortunately we hear a lot of stories of pastors falling, right? pastors cheating on their spouses, pastors bringing disgrace to their churches. Uh, my first reaction is grief, um, sorrow over what is happening to that church and how the Christian witness is damaged. Uh, but my reaction is not, you know, what the heck is wrong with those people? My reaction is not to pick up stones and throw them. My second reaction is fear, because I know I'm a sinner, just like that. And when that fear hits my heart, I'm in a good place. So the final warning is for you and I to continually ask the Holy Spirit to evaluate our hearts. Are there any sinful roots percolating? It could be money and greed. It could be hypocrisy and lying. It could be in our relationships. And we ask God to search our hearts, right? And if we discover any roots of sin, any sinful roots, that should terrify us. And if it doesn't, then we're in trouble. Then we really need to cry out to God. But when we do cry out to God, when we do agonize over our sin, God meets us. God restores us. Only Ananias and Sapphira die in our passage today. The reason more people don't die is because of Jesus. We know Jesus is the innocent one. Jesus is the one who knew no sin, and yet he became sin for us. He was condemned in our place. He was the one who received the death that we all deserved. And because he died, those of us who believe in Jesus, we freely receive his righteousness. We actually get credited as if we live that perfect life that Jesus lived while on earth. So church, let's reflect on these warnings. Uh, but as we reflect on these warnings, we can actually do so with expectation. Because on the other side of our repentance, we will be restored, we will be refreshed, and in this rightful, fear, fearful place that honors God and blesses our community. Let's pray together. I wanna lead us in a couple prayers. Let's just respond to God regarding these warnings. Let's ask the Holy Spirit right now to search our hearts. Are there any sinful roots in our hearts uh, regarding the love of money, regarding uh, lying, hypocrisy, trying to look good in front of others, in our relationships, you know, perhaps even uh, in our marriages, in our, in our dating relationships, we, we realize you know, that God is not really at the center of our relationships. Uh, let's just come before God. Let's ask God to search our hearts um, so if there's any, uh, any roots that we need help to uproot, right? let's ask God to give us a healthy fear of God, this healthy even terror of God, that we know how much sin can destroy us. We know how much sin can destroy not, not just our own hearts, but our community as well. Um, so let's just come before God. Let's ask God to search our hearts. Let's just pray right now together.